Hello and welcome to the inaugural edition of the Gumi Crypto's Green Tea Podcast. I'm your host, Miko Matsumura, General Partner at Gumi Crypto's. And today, in this inaugural episode of our podcast, I have quite a treat for you. We're speaking today with Duncan Davidson, who's General Partner of Bullpen Capital and someone who's got a tremendous amount of industry knowledge and success. He's notably a founder of Covad Communications, which went public and reached a market value of $9 billion USD, as well as SkyPilot Networks, so acquired by Trillium in 2009. He actually was SVP of Business Development at Intertrust and led their IPO in 1999 and the secondary in 2000, reaching another $9 billion market value in the year 2000 and uh, four years as a managing director at Vantage Point Ventures, where he focused on digital media and telecom investment. So someone who's got decades of experience here in hyper-growth companies, unicorn companies, and decacorn companies, so really a tremendous luminary and obviously extremely senior and experienced venture investor. He's been a board or an advisor of a dozen companies, so you know, really just someone who you're going to want to hear from. So very excited to introduce uh, Duncan. Thanks for agreeing to uh, be on our uh, podcast. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. And I must say, because I lived through a bubble, two bubble IPOs, I have a perspective on ICOs if you want me to dive right into it. Yeah, like I would love to hear what your perspective is on bubbles. So please jump in and, you know, the ICO phenomenon, the initial coin offering phenomenon obviously loomed very large in crypto for all the imaginations of participants, you know, whether you're watching in the sideline or jumping in, you know, everyone was kind of enamored of this phenomenon. So, you know, love to hear your hot take on ICOs. Well, I think every great networking technology, and I believe blockchain will become one of these, comes in on a boom or a, a bubble. You go back in history, uh, railroads, cars, the jet age, obviously the internet all came in on their bubbles. And you needed the bubble. The bubble was required to get widespread adoption, overcome the normal inertia and uh, sort of incumbents not liking the new that stop it from ever entering. So bubbles serve a purpose. What is ironic about bubbles when you look back on them is more money is lost during the bubble than made, but maybe 10 times more money is made afterwards as you consolidate the new technology. And so I think the same phenomenon is occurring with, with blockchain. Came in on a bubble, it now is widely understood and looked at. More money was lost than made during the bubble. But over the next 10 years, we'll see the whole promise of the blockchain be realized and a lot more money is gonna be made in the future than was lost in the ICO bubble. That's terrific. It's a great perspective. Myself, I was here in Silicon Valley during that boom you described remember kind of the consumerization and beginning of the internet with the World Wide Web in 1994 here in San Francisco and really interesting times. And, you know, we've been through these kind of huge cycles and waves. And I think it's great to get that kind of perspective going on the ICO phenomenon. So kind of going back into the deeper roots of the fundamentals of this, I know that you have a degree in physics and math from Brown University. And obviously, being a Valley person, you're kind of a deep technologists. So, you know, how do you see this deep, 
you know, you call it a networking technology. How do you understand sort of blockchain and why does that understanding kind of translate into this kind of long, I think you mentioned as maybe being a 10-year growth cycle where a lot of money will be made. So, you know, what gives you the confidence in that and how do you view the technology? Well, I'll give a perspective I, I think is not how it's normally talked about, but when I first realized this, it was like, wow. If you think about most software companies, blockchain's a database, it's a form of software. They sell a SaaS product to a company and then the company makes people use it. So for example, Coupa is a B2B payment system. So Ford Motor says, I'm using Coupa. They force all their suppliers to do their invoices and payments through Coupa. And then GM says, I'm using Coupa. And they force the same suppliers to create a second account. And when you start bubbling that through, you realize you get this very inefficient system where there might be two or three payment software systems used by the 30 or 40 big car companies. And hundreds of suppliers all have to use them. And you end up multiplying into thousands of accounts and it gets crazy. So simplify. Let's say you create one car chain blockchain. All the major OEMs and big car companies use it and all the suppliers use it. You sign in once. It's almost like Slack for everybody. You have your permissions and your business you do and you do them in the digital blockchain. So you do an invoice, it gets put in the blockchain. You pay, it can go through the blockchain. Suddenly you could see this vast simplification of the whole supply chain of the car industry where almost everything's now being done digitally on a very good platform. Shazam, that insight hit me, I realized the blockchain can become a, a system of record for every major supply chain in the world. You know, I really like that kind of way of looking at things. If you think about it from that perspective, you know, when you describe it kind of in the context of sort of a system of record for, you know, the world, it really kind of speaks to sort of this notion of internet protocol, right? Because it's sort of the desire for unification. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with this kind of terminology of network technology, right? So if you think about the network technology concept, the fragmentation is actually an efficiency and it's a cost and it's not necessary over time, right? You know, one of the interesting things that we've been privy to is kind of the opinion of uh, Jack Dorsey, who seems to promote this notion that Bitcoin is going to be sort of a singular universal currency, you know, and it's going to be sort of the last final planetary currency, you know, and it's interesting to hear him kind of thinking about it along those lines, obviously, given his role at Square. He's got a bit of a, I guess, a soapbox and a place to stand. And obviously, as CEO of Twitter, he's got a big megaphone that he can use to amplify those views. But, you know, it's to me, it's interesting to hear you describe it this way. You mentioned, I think, supply chain. What are the other kind of areas where you can see this kind of internet protocol, like consolidation of the technology industry? Well, I think if you start with the supply chain idea and generalize it, you could say, for example, we have a company trying to make connectivity much more seamless, and they're trying to get built into all kinds of routers and Wi-Fi nodes and all that. And so you come up with a universal connectivity model where you can use your hash from the blockchain to identify you precisely and not let you have to put in credentials. And you sort of think about how that might work. You could connect seamlessly from this Wi-Fi node to that particular cellular network, et cetera. Roaming 
in such a quick and easy way and your identity would be securely hashed and identified all the way through, suddenly what now is kind of complicated, roaming in and out of good coverage, roaming in and out of Wi-Fi, having to have credentials, things breaking, becomes invisible to you. It's just seamless. And so you go to a level beyond the supply chain itself into how these systems work and suddenly you see a seamless nature to connectivity as one example that we can't do right now. So I think you sort of generalize from the base of this universal supply chain and keep moving. You could see cars, you know, self-driving cars. They certainly need inside of them a blockchain type of capability. There's a level of security they have to have. Like if you have a self-driving car with a blockchain chip inside and somebody hacks the car, it could cause untold damage. So they have to be highly secure. But this car, maybe it's a truck cab and it's got attached to a trailer. How do you know it's the right trailer? How do you know you're going to the right place? You suddenly realize all the complexity of that could be simplified with this underlying network technology based on a blockchain, where you're using the security model of the blockchain and other things to make sure everything works correctly. What you're kind of indicating is this feeling of internet protocol and this kind of universality. Obviously, when you start thinking about the context of, you know, I, I, when I say internet protocol, I'm not narrowing my focus to something just like TCPIP. But I'm really thinking about kind of the middleware protocol stack. I'm thinking about FTP, HTTP, SMTP, SNMP, DNS. Like there, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of protocols that we can kind of like talk about. But I think what I'd love to kind of dig into is in terms of the build out of the stack, you know, and I, you've alluded to specific protocols that may relate to things like cars. And, you know, there's no reason why the security requirements in that context you know, and the performance requirements. I mean, this might be different underlying technologies or different, you know, you just, there may be a car, you know, information transfer protocol bus or blockchain. And, you know, there may be a different one for other use cases. But I guess, you know, with respect to that development, like pointing back to your comment about 10 years, like, you know, where, where are we in the kind of story arc of the development of these blockchain protocols, for lack of a better word? We're probably three years or so away. Uh, I've been watching Hyperledger and the various projects in it, and they're getting mature and being tested. But we have two levels here. We have a level of technology maturity, but it's also a level of acceptance. The little ICO bubble helped get this into people's minds, but imagine trying to create a car chain. How do you get that implemented and adopted? Because if a little company, a startup did it, nobody take them seriously. If Ford does it, GM may say, I'm going to do mine, and Toyota says, I, I want to do mine. So outside of the technology maturity, there is a need to come up with a business model that everybody accepts. It almost undoubtedly would be something like open source, which a lot of um, crypto projects are anyway, and something like a Red Hat that is, provides a service layer to make it all work, as opposed to somebody owning the blockchain. Let me give you an analogy. One of my companies in the dot-com era was Intertrust which invented digital rights management. And when Napster came along, free music, uh, the music industry panicked. Microsoft was working with two of the major labels. We were working with the other two. And I tried to do this deal where we all come together, our technology gets put into Windows, and suddenly 99% of the um, use case in those days of music gets handled. We couldn't quite pull off the deal, so that didn't happen. But then a few years later, Apple launches the iPod and iTunes, and they have a DRM in their ecosystem, and Apple, controlling its ecosystem, actually realized in a subset of the music world, 
the dream we had with DRM. I think something like that may happen where it's kind of hard to get all the participants to trust each other and come together, but certain major players will come up with a broad enough platform. We'll begin to see what the potential is and they'll start rolling out probably in two or three years. From there, you can begin to see how this might evolve over the next 10 years into a car chain or a drug chain or other holistic supply chain systems across multiple players. Yeah, I really appreciate directionally what you're alluding to, because I think you started with kind of a metaphor along the lines of sort of internet protocol, right? And then I think what you're talking about now is more along the lines of, you know, open source. And you mentioned Red Hat specifically. To me, you know, it's amazing what's happened to open source over the past 30 or so years in Silicon Valley. And obviously the recent exit of Red Hat to IBM, you know, and you could also point to the exit of GitHub to Microsoft you know, or even some of these smaller ones, like something like MuleSoft exiting to Salesforce. And, you know, when I say smaller, that was, you know, 6.5 billion USD. So it's not tiny for open source. I guess to me, what's happened in this time span around open source is that open source software is kind of been really deeply proven and is kind of like the inevitable winner of the kind of software world, right? So I think what you're kind of alluding to, if I don't get it wrong, is kind of almost like this notion that like a car chain or some kind of supply chain, you know, that would really almost represent like an open source data. And it would effectively be like an open source data platform. And if you think about developing an ecosystem on top of like an open, you know, and I'm using the term open source metaphorically here now, which is kind of this notion no, of an open source. Nico, you're exactly in the right, right track. So I had to explain the internet to Disney way back about 25 years ago before the internet was a thing and they didn't understand it. I said, look, it's, the internet is ingenious because it separates the physical medium like dial tone and copper wire was telephone and analog TV and cable was cable TV. But the internet separated the wire and the protocol. So it became a network and network. You could have coax, you could have copper, you could have fiber, whatever. And that was a big deal to people to get their heads around. Now it seems obvious, but when you separate the medium from the layer of protocols on top, there's a huge benefit. Blockchain moves a stack above that. In effect, you can have a blockchain car chain, which has multiple software implementations, but they all interoperate, sort of the dream of a distributed system. But they all interoperate, and maybe the token that's used in the car chain is the exchange particle between all the various systems. That's what I think this means. So open source is one way to, to launch an implementation and then dif different players can run their own version of it, but they all interoperate. So it becomes one distributed car chain. We moved a layer up the stack where the next layer up is not one holistic piece of software, but multiple pieces of software, but they all interoperate just like you had multiple networks and they all interoperate with internet protocols. That's nice. So I think that absolutely implicit in this is the name of the internet itself, right? Which is, you know, this notion of internetworking, you know, the notion of kind of interoperability as kind of the base uh, construct. So it's interesting to see. And, I, you know, it alludes to kind of some of these sort of interoperability chains that are emerging in blockchain land, like the Cosmos and Polkadot types of chains. So, you're, you know, you're starting to see interoperability being kind of a watchword because I think what you're alluding to earlier about specific application specific chains like a car chain for example like you know they're all going to have different properties and performance requirements and so you know I do think interoperability is a, is a really interesting 
trend line and something we need to think about because you know we're talking about like the interchain or you know it's like an internet type of a mindset so so come that's a great it's a great buzzword i I think i love it interchain yeah there you go i think that something should arise there so so poking back into this sort of open source data mentality one of the things you alluded to is this notion of token as being kind of a mechanic to glue together different stakeholders that are using a chain, right? So you're talking about kind of more like incentive models and, you know, how participants can kind of maximize their benefit for kind of shared participation in the infrastructure. So what I'd love to kind of get from you is sort of your feeling about the evolution of token economics and your sense of like, what role do tokens play in this kind of growth and maturity uh, cycle for this blockchain technology? Yes, I think it's a great question. I'll try to deconstruct it. I mean, first of all, I like Bitcoin better than Ether. And um, to use some jargon, uh, Bitcoin is not Turing complete. It's a limited scripting language for smart contracts. But that's good because Turing complete means you can copy any program, including malicious behavior, if you just know how to work the scripting language. Ether is much more complicated scripting language, and I think unnecessarily so. It generated all these tokens. Most tokens are based on its protocol. It led to the ICO craze. But I think to a great extent, Ether was simply unnecessary. That's great. And I I can't resist jumping in there because, you know, it's a fascinating statement you're making and one that kind of would be deemed as fighting words in the Twitter jungle, you know. So to me, it's fascinating what you're describing, right? Because when you look at the BTC kind of from the protocol layer, like the promise in the white paper was this kind of notion of peer-to-peer electronic cash, uh, obviously not what we got, but that was the promise. And the promise that we got out of the Ethereum white paper was more this notion of world computer, right? Which, you know, in a sense, I think you're poking there. And I think you're saying, hey, look, we don't want or need such a thing, which is kind of interesting. But if you actually look at the degenerate form of world computer we did get, which I call a securities vending machine, isn't there a need for some kind of a protocol that routes capital, that that routes kind of investment capital? First of all, one thing that Ether taught me was you have a free computer resource in the sky. It's just an amazing thought. It, It computes for you in the background. I like that concept. I just think the Bitcoin protocol is better for the purpose here than Ether is all. Ether has other purposes. But part of the problem is they all conceived of this digital gold and they had, I think, an inverted view of the gold standard. So if you, if you bear with me for about two minutes, the gold standard evolved as an organic, like emergent property of capitalist market economies. If you go back to the origins of it, it's very prosaic. They used to have After the Black Death, there was free labor in Europe and for sad reasons, but I started a whole thing where people had marketplaces and a town would be a market town. And you'd come to the town with your wool or whatever you wanted to trade and they'd force you at the gate to check in your sword and check in your money. So you'd put your gold coins or whatever into a vault and you'd be given a chit. You spend a week in the market like you see on TV, buy, sell, little chits. And you know, sell some, buy some. At the end, you go back to the vault and they take all your chits, you sold this, you bought this, and they sort of get down to here's your net and they give you the net gold and you leave the market with your weapons. People then began to understand, why do you have to ever bring gold? Holland was the first one to do this brilliantly, the Netherlands, and then eventually it was taken over by the Bank of England. They had gold in a vault in Amsterdam. And all over the world, you could do chits on the gold in the vault 
And the gold would never move. You never had to carry it with you. And when the English did it, it was brilliant. The Bank of England had gold in a vault for you. They created this instrument called a real bill, R-E-A-L, bill. Real meaning backed by gold. 90-day instrument. You can go anywhere in the world. You can go to Hong Kong, go into China. You could buy silk, get somebody to colorize it, get somebody to put it on a ship, send it to Harrods. All trading a chit called a real bill. Your gold that ever moved stayed in England. A small amount of gold in England in the vault managed a huge global economy. And the chits would trade like money. So if the money was hot, they might trade 20, 30 times. The money was cold 10 times. So you had elastic money supply. It would grow and shrink on demand and the actual amount in the vault in England. All right. We screwed that up after World War I and replaced it with a bastardized system called the gold exchange standard. But the brilliance of it was it grew up organically and it supported a huge global economy. Bitcoin could provide that role, but people have not yet figured out how to create the checks, the chits, whatever that sit on top of the Bitcoin, where the Bitcoin itself just sits in the quote unquote, the electronic vault, never moves. But people trade on top of it without the Bitcoin value skyrocketing or decreasing. You see, you get this concept, just sort of think about it. When I look through this, people are mistaking what Bitcoin is, which is information for value. It's the information which is important. The token is a trade between X and Y, an exchange particle. That information is more important than what the value of the token is. But we've conflated the two. We need to somehow separate the two so the tokens can exchange in, say, the car chain without them representing value in the fiat or the real world. That's when I think the breakthrough will occur. In a car chain where you're exchanging stuff all the time in the token world, without it having a quote-unquote stated value. It's like these little chits. The value never changes. It's always a base value, but the chits exchange, you can buy, you can sell, you can do all this commerce. And at the end of the transaction, when actually the car is actually sold, then you clear all the various claims on it. And there was nothing in the middle which drove the price high and drove the price low, because there's no price, it was just information. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think what you're alluding to is possibly sort of mechanic of exchange that produces sort of dark pooling. I mean, I don't know if you're alluding to intentionally or thinking about something like lightning or second layer network technologies, but you know, it feels like there are sort of emerging technologies that allow you to deal with things in discrete payment channels and then kind of have off chain and then ultimately kind of reconciliation onto the main chain. So I, I think there's yeah. some- I think Lightning and Ripple are trying to do this, but Ripple itself has a value and it goes up and down. And uh, I, I don't know if it's Morgan Stanley, but one of the major money center banks just announced their own crypto exchange particle, so to speak. They call it a stable coin, but it doesn't have value of that sort. It doesn't fluctuate in value. It's simply the information exchange that will do a faster movement of money than the SWIFT system in the world. Uh, it's a very good breakthrough. And again, they didn't conceive of it as a form of currency. It's just a form of information. The currency exchanges happen at both ends. And if it happens fast enough, there's no real fluctuation. So bam, you're done. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, interesting. Is it just a question of speed? What I'm thinking about is this emergence of a number of different projects that deal with payment and they, you know, they kind of, the current mood is to sort of launch your own stable coin and it's pegged to something in value like a dollar. I just would love to kind of get your read well, on that. If you go back to the gold standard, gold was money 
um, the U.S. would issue a coin, but the U.S. dollar was a weight of gold. It wasn't the other way around. So gold was money, and it defined the value, and it was stable. You look over 250 years from the Bank of Amsterdam, whatever that bank was, to 1913, Federal Reserve and World War II start, one starting, there was almost no overall inflation or deflation in the whole world in this world money. None. There, there were periods of time where you ran a war, like 1815, you fight Napoleon, where there was inflation. But then after the war, everything went back down to the gold number. And you occasionally went off the gold standard to fight the war and borrow money, then you go back on it. But there was no overall inflation or deflation. Like a nickel cigar was always a nickel cigar, whatever the phrase is. Only after we broke that, after World War I, and we had horrific inflation. When I think a nickel cigar today is like $2. I mean, it used to be a nickel in 1910. The economists then say inflation's good. We need inflation. They want 2% inflation a year. They've now embraced the very thing they broke as good, but there's no evidence it's good. And so I think a lot of the people, when they started the Bitcoin project and need gold, were trying to go back to a global currency not controlled by any economy, not controlled by the U.S. or China or the Bank of England, but a global currency that would have no overall inflation or deflation, which is the right goal. But when you do it that way, you don't think of dollar per Bitcoin, you think of Bitcoin per dollar. In other words, Bitcoin becomes the stable price, not the fiat. And stable coins are all trying to stabilize against a fiat currency, so they're not going to be that stable. We're not there yet. We cannot get there the way we are right now. It's just a dream because, it's, you know, governments have tanks and guns and so that they don't want their money to be turned into Bitcoin. It would take a change in the global system for that to happen. Yeah, that's very fundamental reasoning. And I think it's very helpful because, you know, it, to me, the thing that you're alluding to is kind of how these monetary systems have fluctuated over a pretty long time course. Like, you know, it, from an editorial perspective, if you do look at the buying power of the U.S. dollar since 1913, it's down by 95 percent, as you would expect traditional inflationary currencies to behave. So it's very interesting. And I think what you allude to over a long time course that's funny is, is that if you actually measure the value of a deflationary currency, you know, and I, I call it deflationary simply because people lose their private keys. So the supply actually decreases over time, uh, circulating supply, because, you know, if you lose your private key to a wallet, that stuff's gone. If you do look at it as somewhat deflationary over time, you know, a long time course, then the net result should be that the dollar value should appear to increase as a function of the buying power of the dollar decreasing through inflation. Well, I, I want to make two comments. Sure. If, if you go to Milan with an ounce of gold equivalent, you could buy a fine Italian suit and a pair of shoes. Apparently, 2,000 years ago, when Caesar went to get a good toga and some sandals, it cost an ounce of gold. Amazing. To some extent, in 2,000 years, there's been no fundamental change in the value uh, against gold. Uh, very weird to hear that, but it seems to be true. But when you look at gold, the gold standard, it wasn't based on the quantity of gold. They had to have circulating coins, and that would kind of fluctuate by discovery of a mine. But once you went to the CHIT system, the Bank of England system, it wasn't based on the quantity of gold. There was enough gold, so to speak, sitting in the vault. But the money supply was very elastic without the value of it changing. So the idea that Bitcoin deflates because, you know, maybe the, the group that were Satoshi never lost one of the keys for the first million Bitcoin and all that they'll never circulate. I don't think it matters because it isn't the total quantum of Bitcoin versus the total amount of money use that drives the price. 
because you can create these elastic instruments on top of the Bitcoin that grow 20x and drop 20x just based on need. It's the information that's important and people have to get their head around. Money is information, it's not the other way around. It's not like the interest rate is information about the time propensity to delay having money now or money later. High interest rates, low information, interest rates have huge information value. When you control interest rates like we're trying to do right now, you screw that up. But in the old days, interest rates were information about the demand for money and it would fluctuate a lot and that was good because then you could decide whether to invest or not invest. I'm going through a lot of stuff very quickly, but I'll try to explain to you that I think the Bitcoin system can support this future monetary system, but it will way, way, way in the future because the governments don't want to give it up right now, nor should they. It's fantastic what you're describing. And I'm wondering if you have any kind of reading references or book references for the audience to kind of further educate themselves. I feel like we're tapping into a very deep mindset. And in particular, I think the interesting thing that you're alluding to is kind of about essentially money as information. And as you can see, like it may be a more organic mindset for, you know, so-called information age industry rather than for an industrial economy. So well, I, I guess- I'll give you two things to read. One yeah. for quick read is something called The 5,000 Years of Money or something like that. It's a book around how money actually never started the way people say it is as barter, you know, cow shells. No, money started as debt. And money was always based on debt, not based upon something physical. It's a great book. The other thing to read about is the Real Bill Doctrine, R-E-A-L-B-I-L-L Doctrine. This organic emergent property capitalism, Adam Smith talked about it in his Wealth of Nations. When the US Federal Reserve was created in 1913, it was supposed to be a real bill clearinghouse, just like the Bank of England. We got off that, but reading the history of the real bill will suddenly, you're that's what led me to go, oh my God, we got this all backward. And the fact it was an emergent property of capitalism means it had very deep organic roots in the way people behave in human nature, as opposed to things we try to impose on top of people, which tend not to persist because they're not, they don't organically develop from the day-to-day -day interactions of people. Anyway, those are two suggestions. No, it's super helpful. And I like the mindset about the organic development, because I think when you describe the emergence of the gold standard, you're really talking about kind of the post-plague reconstruction of kind of how society meets its needs, right? Which is the emergence of the marketplace. And it's kind of really odd sort of gold sword and custody model, right? So it's really this kind of like very kind of scratching the earth emergence of need you know, mapped to these chits, right? So it's a great lens and a perspective through which we can kind of think about the emergence of new monetary systems. But I would be heartily agreeing with you to say that the internet started printing its own money about 10 years ago, but the idea that governments would want to yield their monopoly to an internet money is <laughs> kind of comical. And, and yes, they have many tanks and missiles and you know they have, they, have, they have things that will allow them to resist that tendency. Yeah, look, history is a series of tragedies in some way. World War I completely changed what had been a structure of the world since about Diocletian, like 300 AD. Amazing to think about. He sort of set the modern age or the feudal age. World War I blew it up and we're still living the aftermath of that. So after World War I in 1919, in 1920, they could have reinstituted the real bill doctrine and they thought about it. But instead, to punish Germany, they sucked all their gold oh out God. and came up with this dollar pound exchange gold standard, a bastard child. And we had the hyperinflation of the Weimar Republic and all that. 
they screwed it up. They just screwed it up. And in 1944, when we had Bretton Woods, Keynes suggested a synthetic currency called a Bancor, B-A-N-C-O-R, trying, <laughs> trying to take, you've heard of Bancor as one of the crypto projects. Yeah, of course. That's why I chuckled. That's very good. Yes, they were trying to create a monetary system that wasn't based on a pound or a dollar or some economy. But the U.S. said, we won the war. What the hell? They sort of demanded a dollar exchange standard. But the problem is, the next thing you read is a guy named Triffin, T-R-I-F-F-I-N. Uh, always reminds me of a science fiction book, Day of the Triffids. But Triffin was an economist in the 1950s who said, the dollar exchange standard and the U.S. dollar reserve currency is a bad bargain because you have to inflate the global currency enough, let the global economy grow, but that could impact the domestic economy. So essentially, you have to run persistent trade deficits because you're distributing and exporting dollars to the world, and that would thin out the U.S. economic base over time, which it has done. And the Triffin Dilemma, you can read about it. It's a very good dilemma. Once you get that, you go, oh, my God, the U.S. would be better off not being the reserve currency and making some global independent system of reserve currency in the old days, that was gold. Gold was a, a, a thing not owned by any country. And so the Bancor was going to be a thing not owned by any country that was independent of the fluctuations of country economies. We at some point have to go back to something like that, whether that thing is gold or whether it's some kind of Bancor or SDRs or some other ideas have all been floated. Whether it could be a cryptocurrency could also be floated. That's the other thing I would read about, because when you understand the problem being the reserve currency creates for a thing like the U.S., it leads to what's been happening ever since, um, increase in inequality, thinning out of the industrial base, et cetera, et cetera. And we're trying to deal with it now, you know, 50, 60 years on from when the problem started by very big clubs like tariffs. And these are just crude instruments that cause their own damage. You know, so it's really sad to me in some ways. I wish there was somebody like Alexander Hamilton back in the early days of our founding of our country, some, somebody who could come up with and sell a better international monetary system. So it may be that the Bitcoin, just to wrap it all up, it may, very well may be that the Bitcoin genius and the, the whole crypto community might end up developing a emergent model, which becomes a new monetary system of the world, because we seem to lack the, the canes or the... Alexander Hamilton genius to come up with a solution. It may have to emerge from the tech world. Well, and I think the excitement about that vision you're describing is really that we have seen a tremendous amount of creativity in the open source world. And obviously now when you look at the economic incentives associated with creating a solution that works for a billion or two billion users, the economic incentives are, are now there. So I think that your idea that maybe it will emerge as a function of these types of assets is, I think, sound. So I know you uh, have a place to hop to. So, you know, definitely would love to kind of ask you a last really quick question, which is as a venture investor who's kind of looking into this sector, you know, what are the kinds of things that you think are of interest to you in terms of today? Like what, what types of investments would be attractive to you and what are you looking out for right now? Well, we have four crypto investments, but we went into as a venture person in the venture side of dollars in as opposed to buying the token. I really like companies trying to create this a supply chain blockchain software system. So I, I, if you have those, I'd love to see those. 
That's terrific. I also, I also like the systems that like this one that's trying to deal with connectivity that are trying to use, say, the hash identifier uh, through the blockchain and the blockchain security model to create a much more seamless sort of day-to-day -day experience. I suppose the third one I'd love to see is if somebody could invert Facebook where you use your blockchain identity instead of a fake identity and you create actually a very good social platform. People are working on it, but I'd like to see things like that come up. That's terrific. Well, I definitely enjoyed this a lot. I think you've got a very deep understanding of the space and a huge amount of intellectual capability. So I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for participating and maybe look forward to having you on again one of these times. Well, thank you. And I feel honored to be your inaugural host. I hope this started the whole thing off well. I look forward to listening to your podcast. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate it very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Duncan Davidson, general partner, Bullpen Capital. And you've been listening to the Green Tea Gumi Cryptos podcast with your host, Miko Matsumura. And I'll be signing off here. Thanks very much.